0: Likely, each one of us have had that one or two special teachers that was able to make a profound impact on our lives. They were able to stimulate our thinking, to be able to encourage and inspire within us a desire to be the best people we can be. I look back in my own personal life and I remember such great teachers as Brother Thomas Warren, Brother William Woodson, and the kind of teaching that they did that inspired not only myself but a lot of really good men to try to do what God would have us to do. These good brethren have gone on. But like the Hebrew writer says about Abel, He being dead still speaks. Whenever I open a book written by Brother Warren or read that which was written by Brother Woodson, it's almost as if I am still again sitting at their feet, listening to their words, and being inspired all over again. With that thought in mind, I'd like you to think about the Lord's Sermon on the Mount. It's almost as if you and I are on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee and the Lord has sat down on this mount and He has presented to us a lesson that instructs, encourages, inspires us to be better than we really are. You know, as we begin this lesson... This lesson is extremely practical. It deals with what you and I face each and every day. In fact, it's almost as if the Lord were looking into each and every one of our lives and looking at us personally and tailor-making a message that fits us to the T. You know, as you look at this sermon, the Lord talks about an authentic faith, not one that's fake, not one that's pretend, not one that's put on. We looked at last week the hypocrisy that existed among many of those people as they gave alms, as they prayed, and as they fasted. The Lord also talks about right choices. Every day we're confronted with difficulties in life and which choices are we going to make and which ones are right and which ones are wrong. And then finally, this idea of always making sure we love God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength, or as he will put it in verse 33 of chapter 6, but seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. This morning, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24, now, You've already heard verse 19 read to you twice. Guess what? You're going to hit the hear it a third time as well as we go through it. But that's okay because I think sometimes repetition can produce a lot of instruction in us, a lot of memory for it. So let's look first of all at this idea of definitions that's in verses 19 through 21. And the reason it's so important is because it reveals to us some very important terms and provides for us some distinctions so we can understand the good from the bad. So let's read verses 19 through 21 again. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will be your heart also. Now, um, let's look at some of the key terms here, some define them. The word that jumps out at you in this section is the word treasure. And many times as you're looking at the original words and you want to understand what they mean, the Greek word here is thesaurus. Someone says, hey, I know what that word means. In fact, I really know what it means. I use one sometimes two or three times a week. As I prepare my lessons and I'm trying to find the exact right word to be able to use, I know the thought of what I want to put down, but I want those letters to match up and so I pull out my treasury of words, a thesaurus. And so you can look up a word and it will show you all the synonyms, all the words that mean the same thing. It will also show you the antonyms, the words that mean the opposite. But the word thesaurus means what is valued or a place where what is valued is kept. We generally would call what we value our treasure. We sometimes would say where we place what we value is in our treasury. But that's the idea that's used. Let me give you a couple passages of Scripture. Matthew chapter 2 and verse 11. At Jesus' birth, and when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, treasures that they had brought to our Lord. You know what gold is. Frankincense and myrrh were spices, fragrances, if you will. It's just like cologne today is of great value. That's what they brought, a treasure to him. If you go to Hebrews 11 and verse 26, it Contrast Moses, when he grew up, he chose not to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. It says, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. All those gold pieces that they had, all of the wealth that was to be enjoyed, he looked to the reward that was from our Lord. But he says... Where your heart is, there will your treasure be also. The idea is that what you and I put as the most thing that we love. And some people make it clear that they love things more than they love people. Some people love things more than they love their family. Others love their family more than they love things. Where your heart is, where your treasure is, they're going to be the same. But you see, the Lord draws a distinction between fake riches and real riches. And what He tries to do is to help us differentiate them. Let me give you a couple of passages which I think are helpful, at least to me, in trying to see the difference. In Luke chapter 16 and verse 11... Jesus said, Therefore, if you have not been faithful in unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? It's obvious that he's implying here that unrighteous mammon is not true riches. True riches is something much more valuable, much more precious. Proverbs 8 and verse 18 says, Riches and honor are with me, enduring riches and righteousness. Now I want you to key on that word enduring riches, because that's exactly what the Lord is talking about. Things that endure versus things that can go away. In second Corinthians chapter four, verse eighteen, Paul's explaining the difference between the life here and the life to come and what a person lives for. And he says, while we do not look at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Everything that your eye observes right now, whether it is wood, or whether it is marble, or whether it is brick, or anything else, that all is temporary. What you cannot see, the soul of man, the spirit, those things are eternal. You see, fake riches, false riches, are not only vulnerable, but they're also fleeting. And so the Lord is going to use three things to try to help us understand this distinction between real riches... And those which are fake, he says, were moths. Now, that's not really a part of our society as much today as it was in biblical times. Nor even during the times of our parents and grandparents. Or maybe for some of you, your grandparents and great-grandparents. Some of you may go to your grandparents' home and pull open a drawer and notice a real strong smell. I can tell you what that is. It's mothballs. The purpose of that was to keep moths from eating one's clothes. In biblical times, moths were very prevalent and would take people's wealth, which was often in their clothing, and just eat them up. And they would be worthless and they would be gone. The Lord also talks about rust corrupting. And this is usually used of metals. You think about the rust that made, for instance, eat up a car. But this word's also used with regards to grain. The little rodents that come in and eat your grain and spoil it. People's wealth was often measured. And James speaks about rust being a witness against us. And he says we're thieves break in or literally dig in and steal. You know, people lived in houses that were often constructed of walls that were stone, sometimes straw and clay mixed together. You didn't have a bank like we would have with vaults that you could go place your money in. People would store their treasures within their own homes. And somebody would dig in, break in and steal or maybe even dig in a field. You know, Matthew thirteen forty four says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid, and for joy goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. He wants to buy it so he can buy the treasure, so it will belong to him. The Lord was trying to say, Things that do not last, they're not real riches. And physical wealth, materialism, does not last. Proverbs 23, verses 4 and 5. Do not overwork to be rich. Because of your own understanding, cease. Will you set your eyes on that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings. They fly away like an eagle toward heaven. Sometimes men think that their wealth will sustain them. And then, like in 1929, men who thought they had so much laid up for so many years saw it disappear like that. For most of us, we may think about retirement. We may think about money that is set aside but if there were to be another stock market crash, all the wealth could just disappear like that. And you say, oh, well, I've got more wealth than that. What if your banks were to fail? What if all of that happened? What would you have? Proverbs twenty-seven twenty-four says, Riches are not forever, nor does a crown endure to all generations. It can be lost. It can be stolen. It can disappear. Ecclesiastes 5, verses 13 through 17 says, There's a riches the evil I've seen under the sun, riches kept for their owner to his hurt. But those riches perish through misfortune. When he begets a son, there's nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb naked, he shall return to go as he came. As he shall take nothing from his labor which he may carry away in his hand. Do you want to know how much we leave when we depart this earth? We leave it all. It does not endure. Now the truth is, some churches, some Christians get it, and some don't. Let me illustrate that to you from two different churches in the book of Revelation. In chapter 2, he says to the church at Smyrna, beginning with verse 8, The angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things says, the first and the last who was dead and came to life, I know your work, your tribulation, and poverty, but you are rich. I know your poverty. I know you don't have much. But he said, you're rich people. They understood there were some riches that could not be measured in the terms of the things they possessed. And to the church at Smyrna, he gave no condemnation whatsoever. When you look at the seven churches, many of them he would say good things about them and then he would say something that they needed to fix. Didn't say a thing about Smyrna. On the other hand, if you go to chapter 3, verses 17 and 18 talking to the church at Laodicea, because you say, I am rich, and have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye that you may see. Now very quickly, let's move to the second aspect of what the Lord says in verses 22 and 23, and that of distortion. Our Lord writes or speaks, The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now, eye disease was common in the first century as it was in antiquity. And eye disease was something that was not easily corrected. Today, you can go to doctors and they can do some things that are remarkable. People who could not see are able to have their vision greatly improved and have it done quickly. In fact, it's been just about ten years ago that I went to a doctor and within five minutes I went from not being able to see at a distance and then he after just having that laser go across my eye for just a few seconds he had me to stand up and he says what time does the clock say and i said 2:30 first time i had seen the clock clearly without glasses in many many years but in the first century when you had very poor medical techniques many people had distorted vision Their vision was blurry. They could not see distinct. Sometimes they might see double. In fact, the word single is the, the word for reality there. And the Lord often used the idea of blindness to talk about not just one incapable of seeing physically, but incapable of seeing spiritually. He said in Matthew 15 verse 14, Let them alone, they are blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into the ditch. People who cannot see spiritually. Well, in this passage, he's talking about a good eye versus a bad eye. A good eye sees single, it sees reality. Nothing distorted. But there are people whose vision is distorted. For just a moment, I'd like to bring out an idea that you may not have noticed or may not have heard. The Lord chose the words carefully here. And he used the word which indicated singleness for good eye. And uh, for instance, if I just see one of Stanley, that's good. If I see two, that'd be which Stanley am I looking at? you're driving a car and you're meeting a car and you see two, which one are you going to avoid? It's good to see single. But you see, the word single in the Greek language has a double meaning to it. It's also used for a person who is liberal or generous in their giving. In Romans 12 and verse 8, he says, He who exhorts to his exhortation, he who gives with liberality or with generosity. That's that same word that our Lord is using. So if your eye is good, your eye is generous, and you can see properly. But many have had their vision distorted by the love of material things. I want you to listen to First Timothy chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Paul would write, But those who desire to be rich... Fall into a temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil from which some have strayed from their faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Here's people that the love of money is so attractive to them they can't see anything else. Or maybe I ought to put it this way. Because we've already illustrated real riches and fake riches. Real riches is the here and now. Or fake riches are the here and now. Real riches is what is eternal. So many people are short-sighted or near-sighted. They're only looking at today. And then there's what's referred to as the evil eye. In Matthew chapter 20 and verse 15 we read... Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I, because I am good? The evil eye here refers to a person who is covetous, jealous, and greedy. You don't want someone else to succeed to do well. You don't want them to be blessed because you want it for yourself. Matthew 7, verses 20 through 22. And he who said, What comes out of a man defiles a man, for within, within out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornication, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, and evil eye. An evil eye, a man here who is covetous. But that leads me to the third part of the lesson, and that's to verse 24. He's given you some definitions and distinctions. He's talked about the distortions that take place. But now he's going to put it in the aspect of you've got to make a decision. No one can serve two masters. For either he will be hate the one and love the other, else he will be loyal to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon, What do you mean you can't serve two masters? You know, it's interesting when you read people's comments on this. One of the writers said, well, this is really not true. You can serve two masters. And he pointed out that a person could, for instance, have a moonlighting job. You know. What about a person who goes and works an eight-hour shift at this job and then they, because of whatever reason, they choose and they want to go to work another job somewhere else for, say, four or six more hours and then sleep the best they can. Do you see, that's a problem. The Lord uses the word masters here. And because that's not a part of our Culture today to have masters and slaves, we don't really get it. You see, when you go to Colossians 4 verse 1, masters, give your bond servants, your slaves what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. The master owns you. He has possession of you Seven days a week, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. You can't moonlight because you belong to Him. If there's any moonlighting take place, the Master moonlights you. No man can serve two Masters. You've got to decide either I'm going to serve this Master or that Master. Because one will always put one above all others. One has to be above all others. And so Jesus said, you cannot serve God and mammon. The word mammon is the Aramaic word for wealth or money. For instance, Luke 16, 19. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon. James 4 and verse 4 says, "You adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? And whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy with God." And in 1 John 2:15 through 17, "Do not love the world or the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, it is not of the Father." But of the world, and the world is passing away in its lust. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Some folks love the world, and they have made the world their master. Now, to bring all this together, I want to point out to you, there's three basic principles from the Bible with regards to this physical wealth. Everything ultimately belongs to God. The clothes that I wear, the home in which I live, everything, including myself, belongs to God. Psalms 24 verse 1, The earth is the Lord and its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. All of us, everything we have, belongs to God. In Psalm 50, verses 10 through 12, For every beast of the forest is mine, and all the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the mountains, and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would tell you, for the world is mine in all of its fullness. God says, you don't own any of it, I own it all. Very important to understand. Second basic principle of material possessions is possessions are always subordinate to people. If you try to think of the value of one person versus everything that one could amass in this world, Matthew 16 verse 26 says, for what profit is it to a man if he gains a whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Nothing is as precious as your soul. I hear people all the time talk about, yeah, I know. I'm, I put this first. I put that first. You know, I know if I were to die today, I'd lose my soul. You evidently don't recognize how valuable your soul is. Number three, wealth is only a tool to be used for good. God gives us the power to get wealth, but God expects us to use it just like we would use a tool. Command those who are rich in this present age... Not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. He goes on saying, verse 18 that they ought to be willing to distribute, ready to communicate, use what you have been blessed with for good. Now you get to the very end. And I want to use one final illustration, found in Luke 12, verses 13 through 15. The Lord was talking with a group, and there was a man who came up, and evidently his parents had died, and the inheritance was being kept undivided by the elder child, elder brother. And we begin reading and it says, Then one from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man who made me a judge or an arbiter over you. And he said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness. For one's life does not consist and the abundance of the things he possesses. Do you hear that last phrase? One's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. We often laugh and say, you know, when you get to the end, he who has the most toys wins. Not really. Because the Lord said, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Let me ask you a question. Right now, where are your treasures? Where are your treasures? If someone had to ask you, what are you worth? You might begin to say, well, I own this much land. I have this much savings. Oh, no, that's not what you're worth. Oh, that's the Lord's. Let me tell you what you're worth. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. You're worth the very blood of the Son of God. And God loved you enough To send Jesus to die for you. That's what you're worth. Now whether or not you appreciate your worth is another question altogether. Well, We're going to sing an invitation song and the purpose of that is to encourage you, to inspire you to say, I want to show my worth by accepting that generous, free gift that God offers me Salvation from my sins. You can be baptized and your sins can be washed away. And you may be a child of God who's walked away and forgotten all the blessings that are a part of being a Christian. It would be wonderful for you to come home. Would you come while we stand and sing?